Hallelujah. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Second Kings. We'll start in either chapter 1 and chapter 2, somewhere around there. We've been teaching on uh, the uh, subject of God and miracles. And last week we talked about the miracles of Elijah. Uh, Elijah and Elisha are really known in, in some respects as uh, the, the foremost prophets of the Old Testament in that they did more miracles than we have record of anybody else doing. Now, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could measure things out. Uh, Moses was considered uh, in many circles to be the greatest prophet there was. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that there was. And, uh, but when we talk about miracles, it's, uh, it's in the, the lives of Elijah and Elisha, it's almost like there's a laundry list of different things that they did. Now, the, um, uh, there are different ways to, to count things, and some people count prophecies as miracles, and, and I choose not to do that uh, just for a number of reasons, really. But, um, but for the sake of this study, I'm not going to get into a lot of the prophecies that they made and, and talk about those things. One of the things that's, uh, that is the most interesting to me about Elijah and Elisha, uh, and, and to be real honest with you, I get them confused sometimes. I'll get to thinking about something that happened or remember something that happened in the Bible, and, I, and then I'll have to stop and think, wait a minute, was that Elijah or was that Elisha? Well, one of those two. I've even preached it that way. Well, it's in there somewhere. One of these guys. Well, that's for that, uh, the reason for that, I think, by and large, is because of the miracles that they did. But when you really get down and study things, the interesting part, the most interesting part to me is the contrast between these guys and not the comparisons. They both lived in a time when, it, when Israel was uh, uh, worshiping idols, was following idolatrous kings. But they, they were very different in, in a lot of ways. Elijah's ministry was one of judgment. First, th- first thing uh, that we see about Elijah, we don't know where he came from. First thing about Elijah that we see, he comes on the scene and he says, it's not going to rain anymore until I say so. And it didn't for three years. He then spoke rain and, and uh, at the end of those three years, and it, di- and it did. It rained in abundance of rain, the Bible says. But time after time, the miracles of Elijah were about judgment. The, the, uh, the contest on Mount Carmel between the, the uh, prophets of Baal and, and himself, that was a judgment miracle that took place when fire came down from heaven it was to show israel that god is the true god it was to exact judgment on the idols and the that they were worshiping and the false gods that they were worshiping and so forth but elisha was totally different elisha's miracles were miracles of mercy elisha's miracles were miracles that helped people and and uh, and and brought goodness to their lives and 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 so forth now, now don't get me wrong It'd be real easy to say, well, Elisha was a better prophet than Elijah then. But the reality was the only reason that Elisha was able to do the miracles of mercy that he did was because Elijah plowed the ground. Elijah was a man that lived in solitude out in the wilderness. We don't know anything about him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know really what he did. We know a couple of times where he he lived by the brook and God fed him with uh, ravens, bringing him food and stuff like that. But... Most of Elijah's life, his ministry, which covered about 12 years, we don't know for sure, but about 12 years, most of Elijah's life was spent in solitude and in the wilderness. Elisha was just the, just the opposite. He had a house. We know where he lived. He was involved in the politics of his day. Each, uh, both Elijah and Elisha had three kings that they dealt with. Elijah's three kings were always his adversaries. But Elisha's three kings always sought him for their counsel. 
at the death of, uh, of some of these guys, it talked about how they would refer to Elisha as my father, my father, even though they were idol worshipers, even though they didn't turn away from worshiping false gods. So the contrast between these two is, is striking. And in a lot of ways, it shows us the difference between the law and Jesus. It's a picture for us, an illustration for us. Because Elisha's miracles, a lot of Elisha's miracles can be identified with the works of Jesus and, and point to those things. So let's go through and, and talk about some of this stuff. Even in appearance, they were different. Uh, Elijah was a, a shaggy-haired guy that, that wore this animal skin mantle type thing. Elisha was uh, bald, and he wore the attire of the day. He was a man of the people. And one of the things that it says, I almost feel bad for Elijah in this. It's almost like he got the bad end of the deal here. Because Elijah did the work that God called him to do. He lived the life, the separated life that God called him to live. And in a lot of ways, he had to plow the ground and do the hard pioneer work that Elisha's ministry was built upon. You know, it's an interesting thing. We look around and, and some of the things Beth said earlier about comfortable chairs and nice buildings and stuff like that. We think we have to have everything to have church. I mean, you get somebody that wants to go out and start a church, first thing they've got to have is a new building and they're raising money for chairs and sound systems and all this kind of stuff. And I think, give me a break. Earn those things. Start small and find out God's with you. You don't need partners. You need to know God. Well, I've got a soapbox about that, and I really don't want to get on that. <laughs> but we're, we all have the same tendency. We all think that everything's got to be just so. It's got to be just right. We all want to start where somebody else left off. Brother Hagin used to say all the time, people look around at the campus and all the buildings they had and the nice things that, that, was, that were there, and he said, people think we've had this forever. And that's why he spent so much of his time talking about when it was just him on the road believing for $150 a week. But even hearing the stories, we take it for granted. Even hearing the stories of how the pioneers blazed the trail, it really doesn't matter to us. We think, well, that was interesting. I'm glad they were faithful. Now I'll give me my stuff. Folks, we need to realize everything we have, everything we have spiritually is built on the, the, the blood and the sweat and the faithfulness of somebody else. That's what tickles me so. And tickle is a, um, well, I'm being charitable to say tickles me. That's one of the things I find so interesting about it. It's always the young people that have the answers. It's always the people that are just coming up. We're the next generation. We're the generation that will see Jesus come in. We're the generation that will get the work done. And I think, bless your darling hearts. <laughs> you have no idea the faithfulness of others that came before you. And a lot of times we see the success of somebody and we don't realize it was built on the pioneer work of somebody else. And so we think, oh, yeah, look at the work they're doing. And all the time when we get to heaven, we'll find out the reward goes to the pioneer. The one that nobody ever knew. Well, that's the way Elijah and Elisha were. Elijah did the plowing. Elisha reaped a lot of the harvest. Now, let's start in, in uh, uh, Second Kings. Um, let me go through real quickly. We won't take time to read through it. But let me go through real quickly the, the story of Elijah's departure. Even, even their deaths were significant. 
Elijah lived a life that, uh, that was a life of solitude and he went to heaven without dying. Now, folks, I don't know what you think about this, but in my thinking, and, and I don't have a lot of information about this, so you judge this for whatever you think it's worth. But for somebody to, to be caught up into heaven on a chariot of fire in a whirlwind, you got to be doing okay. <laughs> Wouldn't you think? He finished his course. It's a funny thing. Uh, the Bible says, tells us a story about how that when Elijah was caught up. And you remember the story about how Elisha knew that he was going home that day. And others, uh, the sons of the prophets knew it too. And so they ever, the, the three places that he went, uh, Bethel, or the two places he went, Bethel and, and uh, uh, Jericho, just before the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, crossed the Jordan River to the other side. Uh, the sons of the prophets, they knew that it was the last day. They knew that he was going home that day. Now, they didn't say anything about him knowing how he was going to go home, the, the manner of his death or anything, or the manner of his home going was going to take place or anything like that. But, uh, but Elijah, Elisha said over and over again, he said, yeah, I know it. Don't just keep your mouth shut. Just hold that to yourself. And then Elijah tried to get him to stop. When he got to Bethel, he said, stay here. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving you. As, as, you, as the Lord liveth and as my soul liveth, I will not leave you. Same thing at Jericho. I won't leave you. I'm going to be there. And finally, they crossed the Jordan River. And you remember, that was a supernatural thing. Elijah took his mantle and, and, uh, and slapped the waters, and they parted hither and thither. In other words, it, it indicates, we don't know exactly, but it indicates that the waters parted step by step. Every time he hit something, it parted, and they went across on dry ground. They got to the other side, and finally, Elijah said, what do you want? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of what you've got. And Elijah said, well, you've asked a hard thing. Well, let's stop and think about that. Hard thing for who? It's not a hard thing for God. It's not a hard thing for Elijah. He's not going to be there. He doesn't care. Who's it hard for? It's going to be hard on Elisha. Now, Lot's made of that double portion stuff. You hear people nowadays, some uh, great man of God will go home and people will say, well, I got a double portion of his anointing or I'm believing for a double portion of his anointing. Folks, that's not what double portion means. Do you remember the firstborn in just the just ordinary inheritance, laws of inheritance? The firstborn got a double portion. Do you know what that means? That means the firstborn, the firstborn child, uh, son, was responsible for the, the, the carrying on of his father's house. So when Elisha asked for a double portion, he's not saying, I want to do twice as much as you do, even though the number of miracles that he did was twice as much, but he ministered five times as long. Elijah's ministry was 12 years and Elisha's ministry was 60. Did I say that right? Elijah was 12 and Elisha, I'm sorry, I get them mixed up sometimes even when I'm talking about them. So Elisha ministered for 60 years. Well, he did twice as many miracles. But that double portion doesn't even mean twice as much even though it worked out that way. And, And a lot of that has to do with how you count anyhow. It's real easy to count it and make it work out right, but there's other ways you can count it and it doesn't work out exactly right. No question, Elisha did more. But when he's saying double portion, he's saying, I want to carry on in your, in your footsteps. Well, doesn't he already know that he's going to? You remember in, uh, in Elijah's ministry when he, after he had the, the contest on Mount Carmel and Jezebel, the queen, he killed the 450 prophets of Baal and uh, the 400 prophets of Asherah. And uh, the Jezebel, the queen, says, well, I'll kill him this time tomorrow. By this time tomorrow, I'll have his head cut off him just like he cut off the heads of my prophets. 
So he runs up into the mountain. And he's sitting up there, and, and, uh, and the Lord speaks to him and says, what are you doing up here? God takes care of him. You know the story. He finally speaks to him with a still small voice. One of the things he tells him to do is anoint, anoint Elisha in his room or in his place to take his place. So why is it necessary for Elisha to be asking for a double portion? Because it's not just what God wants. You've got to have a desire for it too. Now, we don't know exactly how long Elijah and Elisha were together. It's probably four to six years. But we don't know for sure. But whatever it was, whatever the period of time that was, we see that Elisha, who first resisted, when Elijah came along and threw his mantle over his coat, over his shoulders and started to walk off, Elisha said, wait, 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 what's, got, what's up with this? And Elijah said, this is between you and God. And Elisha said, well, let me, uh, let me uh, tell my father and let me make sure that everything's done right. And he said, no, I don't have anything to do with this. What you do is up to you. And finally, Elisha talks Elijah into staying long enough to where he kills the, the ox. It says there were 12, oaks, uh, 12 yokes of oxen that were plowing the field, which means Elisha, we don't know anything about where Elijah came from, but we know that Elisha came from wealth. Elisha's father was a wealthy man. So we don't know what Elijah had to give up to live a solitary life in the wilderness, but we know what Elijah had to give up to follow this guy. So by the time Elijah goes off the scene and is caught up into heaven in the, in the chariot of fire, Elisha has seen enough to know that following God is the only thing he wants to do. He could very well have seen, said, well, man, that was a great show. There goes Elijah. I guess I'll go back to dad's house. Wonder if you ever got that big screen TV yet. But he didn't. He wanted to continue. Now, what does he want to continue doing? Does he want to be the prophet of judgment that Elijah was? No, Elijah's figured it out. He knows already that how God used Elijah is not necessarily the way that he's going to use him. Folks, nobody takes on the mantle of somebody else. Nobody takes on the anointing of somebody else because God uses us all as individuals. There's probably 20 people out there that are running around saying they got the mantle of Brother Hagin. Well, nobody's got it because it wasn't his. It's what God gives you. And God doesn't give you somebody else's stuff. God gives you what's yours. So Elisha sees him go up into heaven. The condition was that Elijah placed on it, if you see me when I'm taken up, then you can have what you ask for, but it'll be tough on you. Serving God can be tough. So Elisha does. He sees him. He goes. He sees him being caught up into heaven. Picks up the mantle that falls off of Elijah. Takes the same mantle and slaps the water on the way back. The sons of the prophets are standing up in the hill watching, the hillside watching. And they see that the same anointing, the same spirit of the prophet that was Elijah is now on Elisha. In other words... God's chosen Elisha to be the next prophet of Israel. Now, what's interesting about this is that the next, uh, what is this? Is it chapter, uh, mm -hmm. must be chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About verse, uh, uh, verse 16 through 18, something like that. It says that the sons of the prophets, the other sons of the prophets, now get this, this is so dumb. 
the other sons of the prophets, the ones that knew ahead of time by the Spirit of the Lord that Elijah was going home that day, they said that they needed to go look for Elisha. Now, what, here's what we don't know. We don't know if they saw from the hillside Elijah go up in the chariot of fire or if, if Elisha just told them, here's what happened. We don't have any definitive answer on that one way or the other. But what they did come to understand is that Elijah was taken up in that chariot of fire in the whirlwind. And so here's what the sons of the prophets, here's what the sons of the prophets did. They said, we better go look for him because he might have fallen out. Now, there's a back story to that or a side story to that. Remind me to get to this in just a minute, okay? Elijah, Elisha said, you've got to be kidding. You don't fall out of God's chariot. But they kept on him so much that Elijah, uh, Elisha became ashamed. Let me tell you something about what happens when people die, folks. When people die... When anyone, your loved one, my loved one, whoever it is, when somebody dies, it's real easy for others to put a guilt trip on you emotionally. And you do things that are out of character trying to satisfy somebody else. A lot of what happens in funeral homes. Just file that away. It'll mean something to you someday. So they went for three days. They went and searched for him for three days and came back and said, well, we can't find him. And Elijah said, you idiots, didn't I tell you? Now, here's the here's side story. Here's the funny part about it to me. When we went to Israel in um, um, Caesarea Philippi, beautiful place. Caesarea Philippi is the place where uh, uh, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, or one of the other, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, but who do you say I am? At the place where that took place is a, a, a springs of water, then and now, still, still the same way now. Beautiful place. And they're carved into the side of the mountain, all kinds of alcoves and little, little places where they used to set up false gods. And it was kind of a um, strip mall for idolatry. Because you could go and you could worship this God and then go 50 feet down the way and worship this God and go 50 feet down the way and worship this God. I mean, you can see them all there. I mean, you can see the places where all this stuff happened. It's where uh, Jesus talked about um, uh, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the son of God. I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell is a giant cave with a, a, a fountain below. Earthquakes have changed it up a little bit, but it used to be this big, big thing that had a big whirlpool in it. They'd throw a sacrifice in. If the sacrifice survived, then they knew that the God was appeased. If it died, then better try again. And so that's what Jesus, it was called the gates of hell. And Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. Now, he's not talking about the whirlpool and the, the cave. He's talking about literally the gates of hell. But in this place, there was a, we went and, and the guy that we were with, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of people around. It was kind of a rainy day. And so uh, rainy and muddy and, and all that kind of stuff. Not a real pleasant day. It's still a beautiful place, but the weather could have been better. could have worked better for us. And, uh, and so anyway, I'm standing over there and, and, and I finally said to the guy, I said, uh, I need to go to the restroom. And there was a little place on the hillside. And I said, is that the restroom? And he said, no, that's Elijah's tomb. I said, oh, I thought, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Elijah, what, what are you talking about? He said, this is the place that the Muslims have identified as Elijah's tomb. 
And I laughed, not really even remembering the Bible story. And I laughed and I said, son of a gun, he must have fallen out of that chariot. (laughs) So you see where the sons of the prophets were coming from. Now, I guess I should be a little bit easier on them. I mean, how in the world would we expect something like that to happen and and accept it if we didn't see it for ourselves or whatever the case is, uh, you know? I should cut them a little bit of slack. But, but that's what they said. They said, well, we'll go look for him. Well, Elisha said, I told you not to look for him. He's gone. And then the first thing that takes place in his public ministry is, um, takes place in chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 19. The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not. One translation that says the water is very bad. It doesn't indicate to us that it's poisonous, but it's just uh, undrinkable because of maybe sulfur content or something like that. Who knows? And the ground is barren. So apparently the chemical content of the water was such that it, that it kept crops from growing. And he said, here's what Elijah, Elisha said. Elisha said, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth into the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. Now, Elijah, again, remember the contrast. The first miracle, public miracle of Elijah was, it's not going to rain again till I say so. And that was judgment on Baal, the god Baal, the idol Baal that they were worshiping, that they thought controlled the rain and the crops and the fertility of the land. Now, Elijah's day, when Elijah's ministry started, uh, uh, Israel was pretty prosperous. Things were going well. There weren't a whole lot of wars. There weren't a whole lot of things that were going on against Israel or, or to, to work against Israel. But they had been worshiping uh, idols for some time. And Elijah's ministry marks the beginning where God says, all right, I've had enough of this. For your disobedience, here's the curse that comes upon you. In Elisha's day, the 60 or so years that, uh, or, or about 60 years that Elisha ministered, those years were years of wars and famine. In other words, the, the curse of idolatry for Israel for the previous 12 years has now caught up to them. And for the next 50 or so years following that idolatry and following that rebellion, Israel's living the, the results or the consequences of their actions. So in some ways, Elisha, uh, in some ways, Elijah had it better than Elisha did. Because he had a lot of the, the uh, Elisha had a lot of the, the consequences of sin to deal with. The next miracle that tells us takes place is in chapter 2 and verse 24. It tells us the waters were healed. Verse, uh, uh, maybe I ought to finish this before I go to the next. Verse 21 again. And he went forth into the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters and there shall not from thence be any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha which he spake. And here's the next miracle that takes place. This one's kind of strange. It's almost like God's making the laundry list to show us there were more miracles. And he went up from thence unto Bethel and as he was going by the way there came forth little children. That does not mean toddlers. Probably teenagers. Young men, one translation says, came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear 42 of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. Now, obviously, the, the, the meaning of this 
uh, miracle, this event that took place is, is, I mean, who can miss this one? This simply means don't make fun of the pastor. (laughs) There's just no other way you can interpret that. No, it does have a greater meaning here, folks. And that is the fact that these were young men, probably in their teenage years or something like that, the fact that these were young men show the condition of the people and the families to have taught their children in such a way that they have no respect for the men of God. So what does Elijah do? Or I'm sorry, what does Elisha do? He gets rid of them because he knows they're going to carry it on. You know, the Old Testament is pretty tough. I used to tell my kids when they were real young, I used to say, you know, the Bible says that the rebellious children ought to be taken into the street and and stoned. (laughs) First time I told that to my son, his eyes got big as saucers. He said, Dad, does it really say that? And I said, yeah, son, it really says that. He said, people don't still do that, do they? I said, no, Jesus came and saved your little self. Thank God for Jesus. The next miracle is in chapter 3. I I don't want to read the whole thing. I don't want to take time to read the whole thing. So let me, let me kind of um, recap the this, this story and get you up to date. There are three kings. At this time, the, the, Israel is divided into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. The northern kingdom is um, uh, uh, Jehoram, is the king of Israel. The southern kingdom is uh, ruled by Jehoshaphat. He was a good guy. Jehoram was not. He was still an idol worshiper. He wasn't as bad as his father, Ahab, but he still, was still pretty bad. And, uh, and then the third guy was the king of the Edomites. Um, the king of Israel, Jehoram, said, I'm going to go fight against certain armies. And so he, got to Je- he sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he said, I'm going to go to battle. Will you go with me? Jehoshaphat, without checking with anybody, without inquiring of the Lord, without doing anything, said, well, yeah, we're related to you, so if you go, I'll go. Bad, bad move. Don't go, to fight, don't go to battle with your, even with your relatives if it's not the right thing to do, folks. Third guy he talked to was the king of Edom. So they said the king of, uh, uh, the king of uh, Israel is the one that made all the battle plans. And, and Jehoshaphat finally asked, he said, how are we going to do this? He said, well, we're going to go way around and circle around the enemy, the backside of the enemy. The problem is it took them seven days to carry all the stuff, all the men and all the provisions and everything. They get out there seven days away from where they started. They haven't had any water and there's no water inside. So here's what the king of Israel, he was one of these sovereignty of God guys. The king of Israel says, oh, God's brought us all out here to kill us. Well, who brought them out there? The idiot king of Israel. It wasn't God. It wasn't any, no part of this thing was God. They're following the plans of the king of Israel. He gets them in trouble and he says, well, God must be behind this. Folks, how many people in the body of Christ, even Christians, do that very same thing? They get themselves into trouble and say, well, I don't know why God let this happen. Well, what does that mean? Why did God let you be an idiot? Why did God let you make stupid choices? What's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to strike you down before you make stupid choices? Uh, folks, uh, I know a lot of situations in a lot of people's lives that I've, before that, stop a lot of problems. 
But what does that really mean? What do people think God's supposed to do? But see, people get themselves in their own messes. They get themselves in their own fixes. And they say, well, God must be in this somewhere. And I wish I knew why. Well, the Bible says wisdom will keep you from making stupid choices. Therefore, get wisdom with all your, get with all your ability and get understanding so that you'll avoid making mistakes. Meditate in the Word so that you can prosper and have good success in, uh, in the affairs of life. The Bible makes a way for you to do that. So Jehoshaphat finally says, well, is there not a prophet that we can go to? And then somebody says, well, there's Elisha over here in Samaria, so we'll go to him. And so Elisha, they come to, um, or Jehoshaphat's the one that says the word of the Lord is with Elisha. So they came down to him. Start in verse 13 with me. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. Now that's Ahab and Jezebel. Go talk to Baal and his prophets, if you can find any. If any more have come along since the last one were killed. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Again, he's blaming God for his own stupidity. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely if it were not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. So you see the situation. He's saying, this serves you right. Elisha is saying to the king of Israel, this serves you right. You come to me, a prophet of the Lord, when you don't serve the Lord, you're still worshiping Baal. Why don't you go find out from him what you're supposed to do? But since Jehoshaphat stupidly has joined in with you, then I'll inquire of the Lord. Notice verse 15. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to, pass, came to pass while the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For there shall no, there shall, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Now here's what I want you to see about this. First of all, why does Elisha call for a minstrel to find out what God is going to say? You don't find any other place in all the miracles of Elisha that he ever needed a minstrel to, to get any help in this. Why is he calling for a minstrel? The answer is very simple, and this is a principle that you need to apply to your own life, and that is clearly he's angry at the king of Israel. He's angry about the situation. The only reason by his own admission, by the only reason, the only reason that he even considers doing anything for them is because of Jehoshaphat. So he's angry. And you can't hear from God when you're emotional. So he calls for a minstrel. And the minstrel calms him down, calms his emotions down where he can hear from God. Now, let me stop for a minute and, say, and, and point out a couple of things. He did not say, what we need is a citywide night of worship. What he did not say is, take me to a Christian concert. He didn't say all the things that everybody's saying, oh, this is what's going to do it today. This is what's going to bring back the, the things of God and, and all this stuff. He doesn't say any of that kind of stuff because the very thing that you need to realize is the minstrel playing, the music that is played, soothes his flesh. It does not take the place of the word of the Lord. 
I'm all for citywide nights of worship, but they don't take it the, the place of the word. And invariably, these things are coming around again. And, they, and, and don't think it's the first time this happened. They used to do this stuff 20, 30 years ago. Don't think for a minute what some people are going to say. Oh, we had this night of worship, citywide night of worship. Everybody came together and it was so wonderful. We need every church service to be like that. Well, then where are you going to hear the word of the Lord to grow? Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with all this stuff, but you've got to keep it in the right order. Jesus said there's one and only one thing that will cause you to grow, and that's the word of the Lord. Whatever it takes for you to hear the word of the Lord so that you can take it, receive it, and act on it, wonderful. But you start substituting things for the word, you're going to cost yourself spiritually. Now, I know, I know the criticism. Well, Pastor Mike's just hard. Pastor Mike doesn't need any worship. He doesn't need any music. He doesn't need anything like that. So he doesn't want anybody else to have any. Folks, honestly, by this time, the criticism is just a rerun. I've heard them all. Let me tell you a story. There's a, there's a guy, we just heard about this a week or two ago. There's a guy that's pastoring a church in the Midwest that used to be part of our church was with us for he and his wife were with us for a number of years doing a great job reaching people in the city and, and just doing a great job he said to somebody here recently didn't say it to me but he said to somebody here recently he said everything that i'm doing in my church is a result of the word that i learned at pastor mike's church and he said at the time i didn't want to hear it at the time i didn't know what i was getting and there were a lot of times that i was sitting there thinking well pastor mike is just rude Gee, we've never heard that before, huh? (laughs) But he said this. He said, I would give anything to be able to go back and relive those years and try to get stuff, have a different attitude and try to get it now. Folks, the answer is this. And and, uh, please, I I don't care what you think about me. Dear God, that ought to be obvious. But what I do care about is the word. Because the word's the only thing that's going to make a difference. The Bible talks about Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam where God, the angel was going to kill him but the donkey that he was riding saw what was taking place and stopped and Balaam started beating the donkey but the donkey opened his mouth and said, what are you beating on me for? Don't you see the angel of the Lord right over there Satan, getting ready to take off your head? I'm pretty sure that Balaam would have appreciated hearing the word from somebody other than his ass. But it didn't change the truth of what was being said. Now you can apply that to me any way you want to. I don't really care. But it's the word that makes the difference. So Elisha says, Thus saith the Lord, fill this valley full of ditches. Now folks, in a place where there is no rain in the wilderness that's, that's been parched and, and, and without rain for a long time, that's the hardest place you could possibly dig. It'd be like digging in concrete. Sometimes it's hard work to get to the blessings of God. But he said, make this valley full of ditches, for you shall not see wind, neither shall, she, shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you can drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. Let me ask you a question. If you look at the map on where they were, they're miles, 30 miles, maybe 50 miles away from the, the largest body of water. And, the, and that water would have been seawater. 
wouldn't have been able to drink it because it's salt water. How in the world is God going to get them water? Now, remember, Elijah was about rain. No rain and then an abundance of rain. Elisha is about water, but not by rain. You won't find any wind. You won't see any rain. But you'll have more water than there is for you to drink. Now, notice in verse 18. Here's what I wanted to get to you. And here's what I think is the whole purpose for this miracle. I love this story because of this verse. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Now, now folks, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story, how that a tidal wave of water comes rushing into that place. Where did it come from? Nobody's got an answer for that. Now, what did God do? Did he materialize water out of nothing? I don't know. What I do know is it's a place where there is no water, was no water, and God made water. Did he make a crack in the earth where some underground spring came out and flooded the valley? I don't know. Nobody else does either. There is no answer for this. This is a bona fide miracle. And God said, or Elijah, Elisha said for God, this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's the significance of that. He's talking to the king of Israel. If you just get your stuff together and quit worshiping other gods and serve God, the one true God, this is the kind of blessing that's available. Now, folks, that applies to everybody. If we just put aside the other stuff that's keeping us away from serving God and give ourselves fully and completely to him, we'd be overwhelmed with the blessings that he'd bring to us and into our life. So they did it. They dug the valley full of ditches. It says that there was a wave of water that came. Um, verse 20, And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered, that behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. That's all it says. We don't know how. We don't know in what manner it took place. We just know that where there was no water, now all of a sudden there is an abundance of water. And when all the Moabites heard the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone upon the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain and they've smitten one another. Now, therefore, Moab... Let's go take the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward smiting the Moabites even into their own country. And they beat down the cities and on every good piece of land cast every man a stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in some place the stones were left. Howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. In other words, they ruined the land for the people, for the inhabitants thereof. They weren't there to take possession of the land they were there to defeat their enemies that's some miracle folks that's some miracle and it came simply by obeying what god said to do folks no matter what the situation is no matter how dire it looks no matter how critical the things the circumstances are there's always a way out all it takes is finding out god's instruction and direction on what to do Now, what God had me do in my situation may not be what he has you do in your situation. For example, he did not say to Elisha, go stand on the mountain and strike the rock with a stick. 
That's what Moses did. And water poured out to provide for the children of Israel. There's a different way for you than might have been my way or God's way for me or for somebody else. The important thing is for you to get in the presence of God to find out, and you may have to do exactly what Elisha did. You may have to soothe your emotions. You may have to calm yourself down so that you can hear. But once you hear what to do and do it, then miracles can result. Amen? Okay, the next one uh, is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take away, take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto thee, unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid has not anything in the house except a pot of oil. Uh, the Septuagint says, uh, a little pot of oil to anoint myself. So in other words, it's talking about a real small little thing. It's not talking about a, you know, some kind of big bowl or something like that. It's talking about a real small thing. Then he said, go borrow the vessels abroad of thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shall pour out unto thee all these vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Now here's Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, here's Elisha giving her direction on what to do. Now, you may remember in Elijah's ministry that uh, God told him to go to Zarephath, the city of Zarephath, because he had a widow woman that was going to sustain him. And you remember the story how that she went out to gather two sticks, she was going to make a little cake for her and her son, and then she was going to die. That was it, all she had. And um, which I think we mentioned last week is a, um, a type, an Old Testament type of the type, because Elijah said, Make, go ahead about your plan, but make something for me first because the, the cruise of oil will not fail and the meal will keep producing uh, throughout the famine. So she did, and it did. It sustained them. Here is a, a very similar, and uh, maybe we'll say it this way, in the same class of miracles as Elijah did by multiplying the widow's oil and meal. But this situation is a little bit different. Josephus, the historian, tells us, that, uh, that this widow woman was the wife or the widow of Obadiah. Now, this is uh, confirmed. But, well, I don't know if confirmed is the right way to say it. The same story is told. We don't have any way to know that one didn't copy the other. That's why I'm saying it this way. But the same story is in the, the Jewish rabbinical annals. And, uh, and the, the story that, that both of them identify is that this widow woman was Obadiah's wife. Now, you may remember that in Elijah's ministry, Obadiah was the man that had hidden a hundred of the prophets of God and, and scrolled them away into two uh, uh, groups of 50 in different caves. You remember the story? Well, anyway, Obadiah was responsible for their welfare. They were here, they're hiding away from Jezebel to keep from being killed by the sword and so forth. And so Obadiah, according to the story, goes into great debt to provide for these hundred prophets of God during these years when Ahab and Jezebel are on the war path, so to speak, against uh, the people of God. So that's why he's in debt. Now, if that's the case, that brings into a whole another idea here about what God's doing and why he's doing it. I mean, for example, why didn't Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha, why didn't Elisha go find every widow woman in Israel and give them instruction for their situation? Why is this one singled out? There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason that this woman is singled out because this doesn't have anything to do with, like, with Elijah's 
circumstance where the widow woman sustained him through the famine or the drought. This is something he does for her because of her relationship with God in some way or another. Now, in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, it says this. It says, He that has pity on the poor lends unto the Lord, and that which he has given will he pay him again. Now, if this is if the story that we hear from Josephus and the Jewish rabbinical annals are true about this being Obadiah's widow, then it makes perfect sense why God is doing something miraculous on her behalf. Because when Obadiah went into debt and took upon himself the responsibility of keeping these hundred prophets of God alive, now God's paying him back and making a, a future for his wife, for his widow, and his children. So what does she do? Verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who bought the vessels, brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there's not another one. So they all stayed. Or in other words, they all stopped pouring out of this little bottle type thing. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now, folks, I want you to see something. If, if we can attach this, and I believe we can. You judge it for yourself, but I believe we can. If we can attach this to Proverbs 19, verse 17, he that giveth or has pity on the poor, that means gives to the poor, lends unto the Lord and he'll repay him again. That means that God left it up to her and her sons. It left it up to her family on what size blessing they would receive. For example, Elisha did not say go find 25 pots. And if you fill up those 25 pots, then you can have money to live on. You can pay off the creditor and have money to live on. God left it in completely up to them what size blessing they'd have. I heard one minister say one time, and I, I know he's speaking facetiously, but he's not exactly wrong. Maybe the best move for her would have been going into the pot-making business. Because as long as she had a pot to fill, that oil would have kept going. When her son said, we're out of pots, that may have been the place for her to say, wait a minute. What do you mean we're out of pots? Go find something to pour this into. She could have cornered the oil market. It's the truth. Folks, God is not the God of just enough. God's the God of more than enough. Amen? Chapter 4, verse 35 tells us about the, how he raises the child from the dead. There was a woman that, uh, and, and uh, here's the difference in Elijah and Elisha again. Elisha was always on the move. He was always going from one place to the other. He wasn't holed up in the wilderness someplace in a cave or something like that like Elijah did. Of course, his life wasn't being sought after like Elijah's, Elijah's was, so maybe that had something to do with it. But anyway, he would travel certain circuits, certain paths, certain uh, roads, from one place to another on his normal routines. And he passed by this woman's house a few times, and she recognized, she perceived that he was a man of God. So she talked to her husband, and she said, let's build a little shed onto the side of the house where he's got a candle and a nightstand and a little place for him to rest so he can stay here overnight with us. So they did that, made him a place, and he began using it and so forth. And so he asked his servant, Gehazi, he said, uh, what can we do for this woman? I mean, here she's done something for us. What can we do for her? And so she call, he calls for her, and she says, well, I don't need anything. I'm not, 
Elisha says, you want me to talk to the king for you? Do you want me to mention you to, to important people? Or what are you looking for? She said, I'm not looking for anything. I don't want to move or, or change my station in life. I just did this for you. And so Gehazi is the one that speaks up and says, you know, Master, uh, her husband is old and she's older and they don't have any children. So Elisha says to her, prophesies to her, this time next year you'll have a child. And she did. And when this child was grown, which tells us this happened over a long period of time, when this child was grown, something happened to where he died. He was out in the field and got some kind of heat stroke or whatever the case was, and he died. She finds out about it, and she goes to wherever he is. She takes off and, and takes provisions and goes to wherever he is and tells the story to Elisha. And Elisha sends Gehazi. He says, okay, take my staff and run as fast as you can. Don't stop to talk to anybody. If anybody tries to stop you, don't pay any attention to him. You take this to her house as fast as you can and lay this staff on the child. Well, Gehazi does and nothing happens. Now, the Jews have a story about this too. I think there's some merit to it. I can't give uh, credibility to the whole thing. but, But let me tell you the story and you judge it for yourself. There had to be some reason why Elisha said, take my staff and lay it on the child and the child will live, and it didn't work. Now, we know Gehazi's, Gehazi's situation. We know that he gets in trouble with Naaman, the Syrian, later on in, uh, in uh, a little bit down the road in the future, in the next chapter, really, whatever period of time that is. The Jews say that Gehazi had to have disobeyed Elisha's instruction. Their story is, and they've got a big elaborate thing about it, and again, I'm not trying to give credibility to the, to the tradition of the Jews, but nevertheless, uh, their, their big story is that Gehazi did not avoid talking to people, that he didn't run with haste, that he took his time and, and he kind of fellowshiped with people along the way, and that was the reason why laying the staff on the child didn't raise him up. I don't know. But the reality is what Elisha said would happen didn't happen through Gehazi. So Elisha is following behind him, gets to where the child is, takes him in, lays him in the the little prophet's room that his mother has made for him, lays him in there, and then lays down on top of him, does almost exactly the same thing that Elijah did when he raised the widow woman's son years before. Now, Elijah, uh, Elisha was not with Elijah when it happened the first time whether he's been told the story, whether Elijah, that's part of his training. When Elijah said, well, let me tell you the things God has done and how he did it, I don't know. But he lays upon this child and the child comes back to life. He does it several times and the child comes back to life. Same class of miracle as Elijah in the same manner that Elijah did it. Now, the next one is in chapter 4 toward the end of the chapter It tells us about how that he came to the sons of the prophets. This is verse 40, uh, well, verse 38. Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was dearth in the land. That means a drought. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said unto his servants, Set on the great pot and make some pottage or stew for the sons of the prophets. And one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered thereof a bunch of wild gourds and came and shred them into the pots of stew, For they knew them not. In other words, they were poisonous things and he didn't know what they were. So they poured out for the men to eat and it came to pass as they were eating of the pottage or the stew that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot and they could not eat thereof. 
But Elisha said, Then bring meal. And he cast it into the pot. And he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Now, folks, meal does not do away with poison. Any more than salt cleans out the, the chemical content of the waters that God healed when he began his public ministry. So you can see the miraculous nature of this. Now, what was this miracle for? It was a miracle for God protecting those that were in his service. Then the next one is the next verse. It says, There came a man from some place and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give it unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What should I set before a hundred men? And he said, Give this, he said again, Give the people and they, that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and they shall leave thereof. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. In other words, he multiplied, God multiplied these 20 loaves to feed everybody. Now, one translation says, and I don't know, you judge it for yourself. One translation says, instead of shall I set before these 100 men, some t- people will say there were only 100 guys. Some people say there were 2,000. And here's the reason. One translation says, shall I set a loaf before 100 men? In other words, they're trying to do the math here. If there's 20 loaves, it'll be one loaf for each hundred. However many it was, God multiplied it and fed the servants of God. Again, even in famine, even in times of war, God takes care of those that serve and obey him. Folks, you better keep that in mind. With the world we're living in, you better keep that in mind. Let him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The next miracle that the Bible tells us about is in chapter 5, here's a story that most everybody knows, and that's the healing of Naaman. There was a Syrian general, well-known, widely respected, that contracted leprosy. And in one of the conquests of Syria, this uh, great general turned out to have a little slave girl of the Hebrews. And she said, oh, if only you lived over where the man of God lives. He could heal you of leprosy. Well, he heard that, and he started inquiring about it and found out that there, there was a possibility for this. So he goes to the king the king of Syria says, I'll send word and a letter to the king of Israel saying that you're come down to, to be healed and, uh, and, and I'll send him a gift and all this kind of stuff. The king of Israel gets the letter and rends his clothes, tears his clothes off and says, oh, this is a trick by my enemies to kill me. He says, I don't have the power to heal. How in the world can I do anything about this? Elisha hears about it. Apparently, he's got somebody that's a pretty direct line into the political scene in the king's palace. So Elisha hears about it, and he says, well, send him to me. What are you upset about, king? Send him to me. So Naaman comes out to him. Naaman comes to Elisha's house, which means he's got one. He comes to Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even come outside. He just sends word by the servant and says, go tell him to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and he'll come again clean. Naaman gets hot. See, important people are not used to being treated like that. Can I take a little side journey here? The reason people get upset in a lot of cases with churches and the way things operate is because they think they're too important to be treated that way. And I don't expect you to say amen on that. I'm okay with you being quiet. But it's true. Sometimes we think we're too important for the way God does things. And sometimes the very way God does it is to let us know who we really are. 
where we rank on the pecking order of things. We take ourselves so seriously and we put, attach such importance to ourselves. Folks, what's important is God and his will. That's pretty much it. We're blessed and fortunate to be able to partake of it. But what's important is God. So Naaman gets upset. Naaman says, how dare him tell me to go dip in the Jordan River? That filthy river. There's a lot better rivers back where I live. Why didn't I just dip in those? And the servants calm him down and say, now, Master, if he had asked you to do a hard thing. In other words, if he had asked you to do something that you considered worthy of your status. Like give a great offering. If he had said, well, if God's going to do this, it's going to cost a great sacrifice on your part. No problem. I'm rich. I can handle it. He'd ask you to do something important, something big, something hard. You'd have done it. Why not just do what he said? So he does. He goes to the Jordan River, dips seven times, and the leprosy is cleansed. The leprosy departs from him. Well, now he's forgotten about how important he is. He comes back and he's just excited as can be. He comes back to Elisha and he says, oh, I'm so glad you are the man of God. I didn't think so too much, you know, yesterday, but man, you're it. You're the guy. However you want to do things is okay with me. Now, take this offering. Let me bring you the stuff or give to you the stuff that I brought down here to give you. And Elisha says, no, I don't need anything from you. You're not important enough for me to take your stuff. And so Naaman is, tries to talk him into it, can't talk him into it. And so he goes his way. He's rejoicing. He's happy, man. This leprosy is gone. I am healed. I'm cleansed. Now I can mix and mingle with people again. Because anybody with leprosy is, is forbidden to, to commingle with people in the public setting. Now I can go back to the king's palace. I can go back into the king's court. I can hobnob with my other big-time buddies. I can be the guy once again. He's happy. Now Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, after he's gone, goes after him. And it says in, uh, what is this? This is about verse... <laughs> But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving in his hands that which he brought, but as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. What kind of idiot is Gehazi? He has seen the supernatural things that God has has revealed to to his master, Elisha. What kind of idiot is this guy? Well, let me tell you what what he does know. He knows that God doesn't show him everything. Because if he thought that, if he knew, if he had any information that God showed Elisha everything, he wouldn't have even considered this. See, here's the thing about working with people that are used of God. You don't know what God's telling them. Man, it used to freak me out when I'd get around Brother Hagin. I'd get around Brother Hagin first, first little bit. I'd get around Brother Hagin. I still kind of scraping some things of the world off myself in Bible school and stuff like that, you know. I'd get around Brother Hagin and I'd pray all the time, oh, Lord, please, God, don't tell him. Please, God, don't tell him. Please, God, don't tell him. <laughs> I had no idea until years later that all my friends were around and said, oh, please, God, don't tell him. Please, God, don't tell him. <laughs> we're all doing the same things. We're acting like we got everything together and saying, oh, please, God, don't reveal. Please, God, don't tell him. No, no, no. We used to tell Brother Hagin that years later. We'd tell him he'd get the biggest kick out of that. And he said, he said people thought that all the time. 
And Brother Hagin had a way that he'd look at you that he'd bore holes into you. And you just knew God had just revealed your deepest and darkest secret. <laughs> I came to realize Brother Hagin used that on purpose. He found out that people thought that about him, so he'd just stop and stare at somebody for a little bit. <laughs> They'd just crumble. That's what I did. Well, Gehazi said, I'll go take something from this guy. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Is everything okay? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Notice this lying dog. My master has sent me. Behold, even now there come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. I won't take anything for myself, but two guys just showed up at my house. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garment. Naaman said, be content and take two talents. Let me double the amount of money. And he urged him and brought two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants, and they bare them before him. And when he came to the tower, came back to the hill of Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, Elisha, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house, and he let the men, let the men go, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, thy servant went nowhere. Where'd you go? I didn't go anywhere. Notice the next thing that it says. And this is instructive for how God uses you sometimes. He, Elisha said, verse 26, he said unto him, went not mine heart with thee. When the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy thereof of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence as a leper as white as snow. When Elisha said, did not my spirit or my heart go with you? What he literally means is, I saw you. God opened my eyes to the realm of the spirit. I saw you. It was like I was there with you. I saw what you did. I saw what happened. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. At what moment did Gehazi say, oh, snap? (laughs) At what moment did he realize, what was I thinking? Now, folks, we've all had those moments. We've all done things that we know we shouldn't have done. And those moments came back to us and we thought, what was I doing? Why did I do that? Now, this consequence... However, Gehazi, I figured it out. And I, I, I can't get into his head any more than I can get into yours or you can get into mine. But you know we all calculate things out. We all calculate things out. And nobody only thinks that good things are going to happen. Everybody has the, has the thought, what if this doesn't work out? And we calculate what we think the consequence of our actions are going to be. You think Gehazi figured on this one? You think Gehazi thought, well, the consequence of me getting caught on this is to get Naaman's leprosy for me and my family forever. If that was his thought, would he have ever considered doing it? Would that have stopped him right there and caused him to say, forget this. This is not even worth taking the chance. Folks, you need to understand something. The consequences of some of our actions are oftentimes much worse than we expect them to be. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Gehazi's future was changed in an instant. 
We're running out of time. I don't want to go through the rest of them. Take the time to go through the rest of them. Chapter 6 and verse 6 says that Elisha made an axe head to float. Chapter 6 and verse 17 tells us about when the Syrian army comes down to find Elisha. I guess I need to talk about this one a little bit. The king of Syria keeps making battle plans against Israel. And Elisha sends word to the king about what the king of Israel or the king of Syria's battle plans are going to be. And so Israel is prepared for him and ambushes him several times. And so the king of Syria finally says to his servants, he says, we've got a spy in our midst. And, they, and the servants speak up and say, no, you don't have a spy in your midst. Israel's got a prophet. He tells the king of Israel, the prophet tells the king of Israel, what you say in your bedroom. Now think about this. Think about the fame of Elisha for somebody, an ungodly, idol-worshipping individual in Syria to know that's what's happening. We don't have any record that Elijah's fame had spread like that. But Elisha's has. So the king of Syria, the brilliant man that he is, says, I know what I'll do. I'll send an army out to capture this prophet. Okay, he knows what you're going to do. But you're going to send out an army to capture it. I mean, that's the whole problem you've got is he knows your plans before you make them. He knows your plans before you enact them. So what do you do? You plan to go capture him. This is going to work out wonderfully. So he does. He sends an army after him. The, the servant of Gehazi, uh, the servant of Elisha, it's not Gehazi, it's another guy. Looks out the window one morning from the house and says, oh, no, the army of Syria has uh, surrounded us. And Elisha says, don't worry, there's more with us than are with them. And the servant's looking around. He's counting hundreds in the hillsides. And then he counts in the house, you and me. And Elisha says, no, you know, you don't understand. These are spiritual armies that we've got. So then he prays. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he opened, God opened the servant's eyes. And the servant was able to see the hillside surrounded, uh, surrounding the army of the Syrians, an other army of angels with fire. So then here's the next miracle. God, uh, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Elisha prays and says, Lord, blind their eyes. Talking about the Syrian army. Blind their eyes. So God smites the whole group with blindness. Not sickness, blindness. There's a difference being struck blind and being sick with blindness of some, of some type. God strikes him with blindness. Maybe the same way that he did with, with Paul. On the road to Damascus, Paul saw the glory of God and that blinded him for three days and would have been a lot longer than three days if he hadn't sent Ananias to lay hands on him to to bring back his sight. Folks, when the Bible talks about God doing things like this in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean sickness. So he smites the whole army with blindness. So Elisha goes out to a blind army And says, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for a man of God named Elisha. And Elisha says, well, follow me. I'll take you to where he is. So he takes him to the king's palace in Samaria, the king of Israel. He walks these guys, these blind army. He walks this blind army into the palace of uh, the, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel hears what's going on and says, oh, wow, this is great. Should I kill him? And Elisha said, of course not. You don't kill a blind army. Feed them. 
Give them what they need for their journey to go back. Praise again. God opens their eyes. They're seeing now where they are, what they could, what could have happened to them. They go back to the king of Syria and says, I don't want to go try to capture this prophet again. Now, folks, I want you to see the mercy of God. They had every right. Israel had every right to kill this army. But time and time again, we see the miracles of Elisha being like Jesus, showing mercy instead of judgment, when judgment was, was rightly due. The last two miracles in Elijah's life, Elisha's life, and I can't hardly even say his name without thinking about it. The last two miracles are the great defeat of the Syrians who once again, years later, come out against Israel. They besiege the city of Samaria. And it's such a famine. They've been doing this for month after month after month that the king of Israel hears a story about two mothers that made a deal. Each of them had a son and they made a deal and they said, well, okay, we'll kill and eat my son today and tomorrow we'll kill your son and eat him. The first day, they go through the killing of the first mother's son. But the second day, the second mother hides her son to keep from being killed. And so the the first mother goes to the king or sees the king out in the the street and goes to the king and says, she did wrong. We killed my son and ate him and she won't give us her son to eat him today. That's just beyond imagination for me. I can't relate to that. But the king tears his clothes again. And again, folks, this is all because he won't turn from worshiping idols. This terrible destruction is because of their own action, their own rebellion against God. And and then the king of Israel says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send somebody after Elisha because he could fix this if he wanted to. And since he's not, he's my enemy. So Elisha just happens to be sitting with some other people at that point in time in a certain place. And he said, the king just sent people after me to capture me. And so when the messengers of the king get there, the soldiers of the king get to this place, Elisha says, here's what it's going to be. Tomorrow, after months and months and months of this terrible famine where people are killing their children and eating them, tomorrow there's going to be such an abundance of food that you're going to be able to buy it cheap. And one of the captain, the captain of the army, the, the leader of the messengers, the soldier that's in charge of these guys, he says, if God opened the windows of heaven, how could it be so? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. People understand the windows of heaven to be a poured out big time blessing. And that's what God said he'd do to the tither. He'd open the windows of heaven to you. So Elisha says, yeah, it'll happen just the way I said but you won't partake of it. You'll see it with your eyes, but you won't enjoy any of it. The next day comes around. There are four lepers sitting outside the city walls. And they said, what are we sitting here till we die for? If we go out there and throw ourselves on the mercy of the enemy, maybe they'll kill us. Maybe they'll give us something to eat. If we don't, we're going to die here anyway. So they go out and they find out that all the armies of the Syrians are gone. Now, the Bible tells us why they're gone. And this is in chapter 7. Verse 6, it says, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots. I want you to understand something, folks. God defeated Israel's enemy with noise. A sound. Not a battle. A sound. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never prayed, 
Lord caused my enemies to hear something. I'm always thinking of things that involve difficulty for me and, and standing in faith or having to fight a battle or something like that. God defeated the armies of Israel that easily surrounded him with starving, out, starving Israel out. He defeated them with noise. I guess my point is this. God's a little bit bigger than we give him credit for. Don't you think? For the Lord had made a host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even their camp as it was, and fled for their life. So when the lepers come, man, they party down. They eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and finally said, you know, this isn't right. God's going to get us if we don't tell the city about this. So they go back and tell the city and the city fathers come out, the city leaders come out and take away all the spoil of this stuff and the city is spared. In the stampede for the people going out to, after they hear the story, in the stampede, the, the, the captain of the army that said, if God opened the windows of heaven, how could it be so? He's run over and trampled to death. So he hears the news, just like Elisha said. But he doesn't enjoy any of it himself. Finally, the last miracle of Elisha takes place years and years later. Elisha died and was buried in a certain place. He'd been there long enough for his bones, his body to decompose and all that was left of his bones. And it says that the children of Israel were burying a guy and they spied out the enemies of Israel, an army scouting party or something like that, and they got in a hurry and realized we don't have time to bury this guy right. So they threw him into this cave. This cave just happened to be the tomb of Elisha. And when this dead guy touched Elisha's bones, he came back to life. Now, folks, here's how I see this story. Here's two or three guys carrying out this dead body. They see a scouting party of the armies of the enemies of Israel. So they get afraid and they throw this thing down into a hole or a little pit or something like that. And what are they doing? They're coming up. They come running. They're heading back toward home. Pretty soon, there's a third guy that joins them. He's running back home, too. He said, what are we running for? He said, well, we saw a scouting party back there. Aren't you the guy we just carried out? Now, there's some significance in this last one, and that is just as the death of Elijah brought resurrection, so did the death of Jesus. There are some other miracles that take place in the Old Testament, mostly through Daniel and three Hebrew children, a couple of things that God does. But no place in no record do we have an account like the miracles of Elijah, the pioneer, the rough guy that plowed the ground, and the merciful miracles of Elisha. Elisha is a picture of Jesus in so, so many ways. Even when people deserve judgment, he stayed their hand. The only guy that he brought judgment on certainly deserved it, but was a man that tried to use the things of God to, to enrich himself. That was Gehazi. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you are the God of miracles. There is nothing that's too hard for you, Lord. 
even like you filled the valley with water because it was a light thing for you thank you that our circumstances and our situations are light things for you to stretch forth your hand to fix father we thank you that you are merciful that we have a faithful and merciful high priest that there is nothing about you that is more outstanding than your desire to show favors to your children thank you that your mercy endures forever thank you that your mercy is everlasting to them that fear you Lord we bless your holy name cause us to see that your power is just as great now as it ever was cause us to see that your willingness to use that power on our behalf is greater than anything we've ever imagined Lord we trust you in situations where we have no strength we have no answer of ourselves we trust you we trust in your faithfulness so Father we thank you for miracles you said we look at this thing from a big picture standpoint you said that you'd fill the earth in the last days with your glory like the waters cover the sea in other words in abundance with no lack and no shortage we thank you for doing that but individually father there are those of us that are standing here today that need a miracle in our own life a miracle of rejuvenation a miracle of restoration a miracle of healing, a financial miracle. Father, we thank you that your mercy is just as great to us as individuals as it was to your servants, the nation of Israel. Father, if you have to multiply what we have, we thank you for doing it. If you have to miraculously create something that didn't exist, we thank you for doing it. We trust in you, Lord the miracle working God for though many may say that the age of miracles is past you are ageless and you are the God of miracles the Lord that doeth miracles thank you Father for shocking us with your goodness as we walk in faith according to your word in Jesus precious name can you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. We serve a good God. Not a God that just barely gets us by, but the God that's more than enough. Amen. Amen. Say this after me. I serve, I serve the, Lord the Lord that doeth miracles. And I say, and I say that he does miracles for me. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.